Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, and we're going to be playing some of Andy Green's conversations with Billy Joel, who just celebrated his 70th birthday at Madison Square Garden, as one does. And we are deep into the Billy Joel essence, which kind of started in 2012 when he was supposed to be retired, but he got on stage at the 12-12-12 concert, which was for Hurricane Sandy, and he basically blew like every other classic rock legend who was there off the stage. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing thing. It was his first concert in like two and a half years. He had gotten hip replacement surgery. He was very retired. And they put him on the same bill as the Stones and the Who and Bruce Springsteen and Roger Waters and Kanye West even. And he just destroyed all of them. That They had bad nights and he had a killer night. Yeah, everyone had an off night. We were saying like the Who decided to play Bellboy. Roger Dalton <laughs> took his shirt off. Everyone was kind of under-rehearsed and kind of like grudgingly there. They had to be there and it just wasn't... Actually, that's a good point. They were all on tour. He right. was well-rested. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually a really good distinction. Yeah. Right. And he did three songs. But the amazing thing about Billy is his voice is so well-preserved. On that night, it was perfect. And he just killed. And the press noticed. And he was very happy. Eh? But the reception and that caused him to start booking more shows which sort of led to this huge comeback. Yeah, he has this entirely unprecedented Madison Square Garden residency, which I think people kind of take in stride, but it's crazy. Like, he plays there how often? He has played once a month for five years, and they're always sold out. And people just kind of treat it as a fact of life, but that's bananas. Yeah. And now he tours in the summer and plays baseball stadiums, and he sells them out that people are willing to climb up and sit in section 516. And watch a 70-year-old man play piano in the vast distance. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the first clip we're going to play is just Billy Joel talking about The Making of the Stranger, his best album, and paying some tribute to Phil Ramone, who died in 2013 and was his longtime producer. So let's hear Andy Green and Billy Joel. Yeah, there's a couple of stories about The Stranger. Sure. The title song, The Stranger. We had the song, and I felt like it needed an introduction which is that whistling introduction. It's kind of a, almost a French theme, like the umbrellas of Cherbourg uh, kind of sound, uh, like the sound of a man walking down a, a dark, like a, a Parisian street at night, and the streets are all glistening from rain. Right. And I wanted that kind of mood, almost like an Orson Welles' The Third Man mm-hmm. kind of vibe. Right. So I said, well, I'm hearing, and I'm in the studio, and I play the chords on the piano, and I start playing the piano, which has the theme. And then the second time around, I start whistling it just to show that I want another instrument to do. Mm-hmm. Whistle the whole thing, and I finish. I look at him and say, so what instrument should that be? And he looks at me and goes, you just did it. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> I hadn't even considered that. Right, wow. I mean, I'm not the greatest whistler in the world, but... Mm-hmm. He said, that's what should be on the recording. Nice. And I listened back and I went, holy shit, he's right. <laughs> uh, he never considered stuff like that. So his musical prowess really came into play there. There's stories about songs, just the way you are. I didn't even want to put on the album. Hmm. And when I first got together with the band and worked it out, my drummer was playing it like a cha-cha, and I hated it. Don't go change one to cha-cha-cha, <laughs> to try and please run to cha-cha-cha. Almost like And I Love Her by the Beatles. Uh-huh. And it just laid there like a lox. And then Phil came up with this idea, play it as a backward samba. And we went, what's a samba? <laughs> and he got my drummer, who was a real rock and roll animal, Liberty, uh-huh. to play as boom, da boom, ba boom, which is a backward samba. And then he brought in Phil Woods. I already had my own sax player. 
But he, he wanted the, Phil Woods, who's a great jazz player, to play the solo. And my sax player was kind of bugged, but once I heard Phil Woods' solo, I was knocked out. Mm-hmm. And actually, Phil created that solo out of six different tracks. Wow. Phil Woods did six different versions of the solo, and Phil Ramone spliced them together into one seamless solo. I don't know how he did it. And this back in the days when it was analog and you used razor blades and tape. Wow. And I was scared to death. He said, well, what if we lose this? He goes, don't worry about it. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and he somehow blended it all together into what sounds like one seamless solo. It's actually six different ones. I was amazed at that. So technically, he got that. And then, oh, we did this background vocal where it's, these voices going, ah, this is before the days of synthesizers. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you can play a harmony part that says, ah, on a synthesizer, and hold it. You don't have to take a breath. But back then, I actually had to sing the note, ah, till I ran out of breath, then go out again, sing the same note, ah, so he could make a tape loop out of it. So it would hold, and it would sustain. Mm-hmm. And we combined all these voices with harmonies. It was all me singing it. He made it work on a tape loop, and instead of using, like, gloppy strings or an orchestra or something, that was the background. That was what the padding was. Uh, I think 10CC used the same approach on it. You're not in love. You know that song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So don't forget it. Uh, mm. All that background stuff. I think they used the same technique because there was no digital synthesized ahs <laughs> back then. Now, I didn't want to do the song. I, I didn't believe in it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, it was it could be a, a gloppy ballad that would be done at weddings, which it is now. Mm-hmm. It became a wedding standard. And he just wanted that song on there. He thought it was a great song. He believed in it. He thought it was going to be an important song on the album. The rest of the album doesn't necessarily sound like that song. Right. So we're in the studio, and he's outside somewhere. He comes back in with Linda Ronstadt and Phoebe Snow. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I'm going to play a song. And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking bummed out. And What's the matter? I don't like this song. I don't think I'm going to put it on the album. And he knew that they were going to like the song before they even heard it. It's a girl's song. They heard the song, and Linda Ronstadt goes, Are you crazy? That's a great song. And Phoebe's, you got to put that on the album. Mm-hmm. Really? I mean, I... I, I hadn't really had a woman's input. And, you know, Linda Ronstadt was really cute. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, Linda Ronstadt likes it. Okay. <laughs> so that got me to do it. You know, Phil believed in it, but I wasn't sure until I, you know, he got them to come in and convince me. So that's another example of what a producer does. He gets the artist to believe in his own stuff. Right. Now, Only the Good Die Young is another song on that album. I originally arranged it like a reggae. Come out to Virginia. The dog, I was even singing it with a Jamaican accent. Uh-huh. Don't let me wait. You can't the liquor stop much. And my drummer threw his sticks at me and he goes, I hate reggae. <laughs> and he says, why are you singing like that? The closest you've been to Jamaica has been on the Long Island Railroad. <laughs> you know, change it, Jamaica. Right. So Phil suggested we do it as a straight four while the drummer played a shuffle. So Liberty is playing and we're playing jank 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 banana banana we're saying banana 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 the guitar players and it worked. I didn't know how it was going to work. So you're going to play a straight four against the shuffle. It's going to sound 
awkward and clunky, but it worked. Mm-hmm. And the guitar player on that recording is a guy named Hugh McCracken, who died the same day as, as Phil Ramone. Oh, wow. He was a famous session guitar player, great guy, really funny guy. I had never known about him before until Phil brought him in. Because I didn't really have a guitar player at that time. Hey, you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, and we're playing Andy's interview with Billy Joel. And let's get right to it. In this clip, Billy starts out by talking about what his life's like down in Florida, where he was when he and Andy spoke just a few weeks ago, right before Billy's 70th birthday concert at Madison Square Garden. So let's hear that. What's it like down here? Well, with the two little ones... They keep you going. Sure. Yeah. Uh, no, the weather's great down here. and I'm not really a Floridian, but uh, I'm a New Yorker, so I'm like, I don't know, semi-Floridian? Right. I suppose it's kind of the birthright. Yeah. You get to go to Florida in the wintertime. Are you looking forward to your 70th birthday show at the Garden? I don't know. I got mixed feelings about it. Uh, on the one hand, I'm happy to be alive at uh-huh. 70. On the other hand, I don't know how much of a... A party I deserve just for making it to 70. It's a work night. You know, I, I gotta work. So, you know, you can't have birthday cake. You can't do any of that stuff. You gotta work. So how do you feel about turning 70? I'm sure back in the day that seemed so old, but you're here now and I'm sure it feels different. Well, it still it feels like I'm up there. This is a Peter Pan kind of job. You know, you start out and you're young and you're rocking and rolling and that's what you do all your life, so you become a little bit myopic about how old you actually are. It has Peter Pan aspects to it. You know, I, I see pictures of myself at the garden recently, and I go, that doesn't look right. <laughs> you know? right. What's wrong with this picture? Um, you know, I got old, I lost my hair, I was never a matinee idol to begin with, and uh, there I am on stage, still doing the same job I was doing when I was 16. So that's kind of strange. All of a sudden, the number 70 looms, and you go, wait a minute, this is finite, isn't it? But there's guys ahead of me. I mean, you know, McCartney's still banging away. John Fogarty was just uh, at one of our shows. He's got a couple of years on me. Elton's still out there banging away. It's not that unusual for people to be doing this in their 70s. Yeah, Tony Bennett, I think he's going to come to our next show and do a song and He's still going. He has no plans to slow down at all. So I, I asked a couple of guys who were like in my age group, like, why are you doing this? And I get the same answers. Like, well, that's what I do. And I guess that kind of makes sense. Well, that's what we've been doing. And we've got to be experts at it. Now, I feel like so many of your peers dye their hair or have worn wigs or gotten plastic surgery or have done so many things to try and look young, but you never seem to care, right? Well, I think for me to try to look like a movie star would be ridiculous. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I've always been uh, pretty much just a schlubby-looking guy, and I ain't about to change. <laughs> and, uh, you know, plastic surgery, wigs, I don't know. It has nothing to do with music. Right. It's all about an image. And look, I am 70 years old. I've never hidden my age. So why should I start now, you know? So how's it different to be a father now than the first time that you were a father back in your 40s? The difference now is people think I'm my kid's grandfather instead of my kid's father. I take her to school and one of the other parents go, oh, your granddaughter's so cute. And I just say, okay, thank you. It's it's not that different. I mean, I don't feel different in a fathering way. I still love being a dad. And I love having the kids. I didn't know that I would be a father again at this age. But 
I'm glad I am. I'm enjoying it a lot. And it, they seem to keep you young, too. Do you think you've learned a lot about women by having three daughters? All my life's been women. I was raised by women. My dad wasn't around. I've been married numerous times. And I've got three daughters. So a lot of estrogen in my life. And so how has that molded you, do you think, or changed you? I think I had a very fortunate upbringing. My mom encouraged me to be a musician. I know a lot of guys who were my age whose fathers intimidated them into not being musicians. So I had a very gentle upbringing. Uh, it was very loving, very warm. And I appreciate that about women. And I see that in my daughters, too, that I'm going to bring up these kids who one day will be mothers themselves. And I hope they're like my mom. So tell me how you pick your set list at the garden. I know each night is a bit different, but is there a certain formula that you use to pick the songs? Well, right up until the last show we did at the garden, we've been concentrating on picking a balance between hits and album tracks. You got to do a certain amount of hits because some people will be disappointed if you don't do those. And you also got to do the things that you enjoy doing that are the more obscure things, album tracks, which are, are a little more challenging because they're less well-known. But the last show we did, I said, you know what? We've never done a show where it's only hit. I think there was an article in New York Magazine called The 33 Hit Wonder About Me. And I had never counted up that I had that many hits. I said, wait a minute, 33 hits? That's more songs than we do in a show. We usually do about 25 songs in a show. Play for about two hours, 15, two and a half hours. And I said, well, wait a minute. If we've had 33 hits, why don't we do a show which is just hit without album tracks? And that's what we did the last time. And it's the first time we did that. And it was kind of different for us. Uh -huh. Usually, I would imagine most bands will just play their hits. But we've been doing a, a lot of mix of album tracks and hits. But I kind of like just going bang, 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 hit, 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 hit. You know, by the end of the show, I said, hey, that was a pretty good set list. So that's, that was kind of an eye-opener. And... I think we're going we're gonna to try doing that for a little bit until we get sick of it. I realize Captain Jack is very rarely played these days. Do you just like playing that one? Yeah, Captain, he didn't age well. He's Captain Jack's been demoted to Private Jack. Why, though? Well, you know, in the verses, there's only two chords. It's a one chord, and then a four chord, and it goes on and on. And it's kind of a dreary song. If you think about the lyric, you know, Kids, you know, sitting home jerking off. His father's dead in the swimming pool. Yeah. He lives this kind of dull suburban existence until he gets high. And it's, it's dreary. Yeah. And I realized one of the last times I was singing the song, I said, this is really depressing. The only relief that you get in the song is when the chorus kicks in. Bam, 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 which is the hooky thing, I guess. I don't know. I, just when I'm doing the song, I feel kind of dreary. And I don't like doing the song anymore. Although we'll probably do it again. And you also dropped Anger Young Man. Is that something that you don't like playing as well? Well, we did it so often, for so long, as an opening song. And uh, you got to want to do it. you got to have some enthusiasm for it. And sometimes I get burnt out on doing the same thing, and I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, and now these days, so many of your peers play their albums straight through. Do you ever think about doing a Stranger Night or a Nylon Curtain Night or just playing one of your albums? Is that something that you want to do? Yeah, that was suggested. Is one of you just feature an album? Yeah. And I said, okay, but there's like 12 albums. Uh -huh. So if we feature one album, that's going to eat up a lot of the show. Yeah. And there won't be much room to balance out other albums. So we never really did the feature the album thing. Although we probably do more songs from the Stranger album than any other album. 
Although lately we've been introducing more songs from the River of Dreams, which people seem to have discovered on their own. Are there songs like James or like Street Life Serenade that you just don't want to do? I like Street Life Serenade, and I think it sounds good when we play it at Soundcheck, but we tried it during a show here and there, and it just lays like a lot. Nobody knows it. Right. You can only do that so many times, and you go, you know what? Just take it out and shoot it. Now, the big trend these days is to make biopics about rock stars. I think of the Motley Crue movie or the Queen movie or the Elton John movie. Are you able to envision the day there'll be a Billy Joel movie? I don't have enough objectivity to do that. I don't know. I, uh, I, I, like I said, I was going to write an autobiography at one time, and I did. And there wasn't enough sex, drugs, and rock and roll in it for the publisher. So I, I gave the advance money back. I said, well, fuck it, that's me. I don't even know if I'm interesting enough to make a movie out of... It would probably be somebody else's idea, not mine. I mean, my, you know, my thing was music, not movies. If they came to you and they had a very good screenplay and a good idea, do you think it's something that you might say okay to, or it's just too weird and you don't want to do it? I guess it would depend on what the story was. I mean, if I found the story interesting, maybe I'd say, okay, go ahead. But like I said, I'm not objective enough to step back and go, hey, I think I can make a movie out of my life. You know, I lived my life. I already did that. <laughs> I don't want to be redundant. You seem to sell more tickets now than you've ever sold in your entire career. So how do you explain this phenomenon? I've been trying to figure that out. I'm stumped a lot of times. We're playing stadiums. We played major baseball league stadiums for the last five years, every summer. And I do one garden gig a month. I'm sitting in the stadium looking out at 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 people. What the hell are they all doing here? Why now? And I guess the answer is all that heavy lifting we did back in the day is actually paying off now. I have a great band. The material has gotten exposure over the years, and it's not just from, you know, record company promotion. I mean, young people have discovered my music on their own. Because I look at it, I see a lot of younger people. I go, ah, what the hell are they doing here? How do they know me? You know, I really wasn't all that productive after the 90s. But here it is, it's almost 2020. And I guess, in a way, I'm an anachronism. There aren't that many of me left. So I suppose there's a rar rarity to it, which gives it value. The rock music itself is, is an anachronism. So many of your peers are retiring, or they're just gone. They're either okay. dead, yeah. or they're retired. They're doing retire, you know, for farewell tours. Right. And well, you know about my idea for a farewell tour, right? My idea of a farewell tour would be the audience comes into the venue, and instead of the band set up on stage, it's a living room set, surrounded by bulletproof glass. Okay. Like there's a TV set, there's a couch, there's coffee table, maybe there's a refrigerator up to the side. So the farewell tour would be, I come on stage, the lights go on stage, I walk out, and I pick up a remote switch, and I start watching TV. And this goes on for a couple minutes, I wander over to the fridge, maybe I make a sandwich. After a while, the audience starts getting pissed off. And they start throwing shit at the stage. But I got bulletproof glass, so no, nothing hits me. And after enough throwing stuff on the stage, I'll pick up a wireless mic and say, Hey, I just said I was going to be here. I didn't say I was going to do anything. And then you know that I've created a bond between me and that audience. They'll never pay another nickel to see me again. That's a real farewell tour. But short of that, do you think there'll ever be an actual Billy Joel farewell tour? No. I think the way that it'll actually happen is there'll be a night where I just feel like I can't do it well anymore. I can't hit the notes. I don't have the physical stamina. I'm worn out. I'm beat. I don't want to do it. I'm not into it. 
And that night, I'll know it's time to stop. And I might even decide right then and there, this is my last show. Although my agent will come up to me and go, oh, no, we can make a lot of money if you do more shows now. Yeah. But I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to drag it out and beat it to death. I know you can't predict, but are you able to see yourself doing this at age 75 or age 80 and beyond? Well, a lot of my heroes are doing it at that age. Yeah. The Stones. Uh, up until recently, I think some was with Mick now. They had to stop a tour. I mean, you never know when that's going to hit. So that might be a reason to stop or just to keep going. You know, McCartney, is he's in his mid-70s, and he's still singing in the same keys when he was a Beatle. It's amazing. I mean, the guy is just... He's in such good shape physically, he can still do this. And like I said, I've asked him, why are you doing this? And he goes, because that's what I do. And I realized I've lived the life. I've lived an entire life of this. And that is what I do. That's what I did, and that's what I do. So I can't predict if I will stop or when I will stop. I don't know. I think it'll just occur to me at the moment. At the end of the night, when you're playing a concert and you strap on the harmonica, and it's time to play Piano Man. Just like, what's going through your head at that moment? What goes into my head is, thank God the audience is going to sing some of this and I can take a break. Because they do. They sing and it's like, all right, you do the work for a little bit. And uh, by that point in the show, I'm pretty well beat. It's been two hours or so right. when we get to Piano Man. But it's, it really is a lot of fun to hear a whole audience singing your song back to you. That's what it's really all about. I mean, it's sort of a big payoff. Like, oh, wow, they... They're singing my song back to me, and they're enjoying doing it. And that's what makes it all worthwhile. So you're roughly the same age as Donald Trump, and you guys weren't born that far apart. Do you think coming from the same time and place as him, that gives you a sort of insight into his character or his person? No, as far as Donald Trump is concerned, I see him as being from an entirely different planet. Yeah. I mean, I know he was born in Queens, but he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. His, his father was rich and gave him a lot of money. Uh, he was already set up to be in real estate when he was still a little kid. I mean, you know, it was a gold-plated life. I don't know how much of empathy he actually has for people living that kind of life. I'm not a big fan of his, so I really, to be fair, I don't have a lot of insight in Are you disappointed in the country that he was elected? I'm not disappointed in the country. I think a lot of people who should have voted didn't vote. Yeah. Whether it was they didn't like Hillary or they were for Trump, I don't know. Of course, I have the luxury of, I've made a fortune. Yeah, I mean, I, I made a lot of money in my life, and I, I'm in a privileged situation. I can't make believe know how most people think. I'm a piano player, so my view of things is fairly myopic. But uh, am I disappointed in the country? No. I think um, maybe this was the shock that we needed <laughs> to shake people out of lethargy. And maybe this is something that should have happened to wake people up and make people realize, hey, something like this can actually happen because before you got elected, we didn't think this could happen. Are you going to be involved in the 2020 election or are you just going to sort of set it out? I don't think I'm going to be politically involved. I find that a lot of people resent celebrities touting their candidate. <laughs> that yeah. can actually turn more people on than it can bring more people in. You know, I admire people like Springsteen who gets up there and, and Tauts candidate, he's a citizen. He has a right to do that. My experience has always been people resented when they go to see you do a show and you get up on a soapbox and spout politics. You make statements in quieter ways about politics. In the aftermath of Charlottesville, you wore a yellow star on your jacket, which I thought was fantastic. Well, I was pissed off. Um, sure. For the President of the United States to say, 
Well, there were some fine people among these Nazis. It's bullshit. There's no fine Nazis. There's no good people in the Nazis. Our fathers, or my father's generation, fought a war, risked their lives. Some of them were killed fighting Nazism. And when they see these guys walking around with their swastika armbands, I'm amazed that they don't run out in the street and smash them over the head with a baseball bat. You know, we fought an entire war, the Second World War, to put an end to Nazism. I don't know, this president missed the boat. He had a great chance to say something meaningful, and he blew it. Are you tired of being asked about the possibility of making new music? Are you just sick of that question? No, it's a fair question, and I still write music. I just don't record it, and they're not in song form. It's another kind of music altogether. It's you know purely for my own edification. But I, I don't feel compelled to record it. I don't feel compelled to make myself relevant. Like I said, I lived the rock and roll life, and I, I'm not writing that anymore. I, I have a lot of music no one's ever heard, and no one may ever hear if I don't decide to do something with it. But it's really about the creative process that's important. I mean, not about having records on the charts or you know selling a lot of recordings. It's, I'm learning all the time. You never stop learning. And that's what's good about the writing process. You always learn something new whenever you create. Are you willing to make a Sherman-esque statement that you'll never release a new album? No, I'm never going to say never. I don't know what I'm going to do. I may get a bug to, to record something. I may come up with an idea that could become a song. I may write a movie soundtrack. I might write a symphony. I, I don't know. Anything's possible. Do you think you've been proven right? Because the critics back in the day, they were so harsh on you, but you're still around and you're still playing stadiums. So do you think you were right and the critics were wrong? Well, I don't know if I've been proven right. Mm -hmm. I think that the only thing that I've proven is, hey, I've lived the life. I think the main problem for critics with me was they didn't think I was, like, authentic or something. Uh, He's not a real rock and roller. Hey, man, I I lived the life. Yeah. So you can't tell me, you know, I don't know what that is. And I think that's enough. I've done it. I don't feel like I have to prove anything anymore. Do you want to sing with Elton John again before the end of his farewell tour? I would if he asked me to, sure. I mean, if you wanted to do something together, yeah, that's how we worked together for 16 years. Yeah. And those were good shows. I thought they were good value. Yeah. So, yeah, I would work with him again, absolutely. Are there any TV shows that you're watching now and really enjoying? Well, my taste in TV shows is pretty boring to most people. I watch the History Channel or the Military Channel or documentaries or the news. That's pretty much what I... Or I guess I've even started watching old classic movies, which I tend to enjoy more now than I used to. If I see a black and white movie while I'm changing channels, I'll stop on the black and white movie. But it always intrigues me. Oh, what movie is this? But um, I don't watch sitcoms. I don't watch regularly scheduled television. It's kind of hit and miss with me. I'm a history nut, so I just like history. I just saw a good movie, not that old, A Few Good Men with uh, Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. That was a good movie. I like those kinds of movies. I just watched Cat the Blanket with Humphrey Bogart again. Great movie. If I come across The Godfather, one change channel, I'll stop on The Godfather. If I come across Goodfellas, I'll stop on Goodfellas. You know, if I see something that grabs me at the moment, I'll watch that. So who is your dream surprise guest at a garden show? Do you want Robert Plant or even Bob Dylan to come out? I'd love to do a song with Bob Dylan. I'd love to do a song with Robert Plant. Yeah. I'd love to do a song with Jimmy Page. Oh, wow. I mean, we've had guitar players show up. We've had keyboard players. I just got a request from the top classical pianist in the world, Lang Lang. He wants to do a song with me. I said, that's cool. I don't know what we'll do, but we'll think of something. Oh, my God, there's so many people I'd like to do something with. Uh, I like it all. I like country music. 
I like pop. I like rock and roll. I like jazz. I like class. I like it all. I mean, I've worked with Isaac Perlman. He's played violin on a couple of shows. John Mayer was great. We've done it with Springsteen. We've done it with Fogarty. We've done it with the guys from ACDC. Foreigner. Well, even Miley Cyrus came by and did a show with us. Paul Simon. So whoever wants to show up, says, hey, come on, we'll do something. Why not? I think that's the fun in the garden shows, that each show is different, and you never know what's going to happen. Well, that's what's good about playing in New York City, because somebody's always in New York City. Usually somebody's in town while you're in town, and if they ask, can we come to the show? I say, yeah, bring your racks. If they don't want to, they don't have to, but I, they're always invited. Yeah, so you're playing every year at the same stadium in Philadelphia as their first artist in residence. That's just sort of staggering. Yeah, we've done it in Philly, we've done it in Boston, Chicago, yeah. um, Washington. Yeah, we five years we're doing this. It's like, I don't know if I'd go see me in the stadium, but a lot of people do. Yeah. We're playing in Wembley again. What is that, like 80,000 people? Insane how big that place is. Like, I feel like I'm doing Live Aid. You know. Did you ever think playing the piano was going to be so lucrative? I never thought it would be this lucrative. I, I mean, I was never going to be Vladimir Horowitz right. or Bill Evans or Oscar Peterson. Um, and, you know, I was a rock and roll piano player. I picked a good job. Or that job picked me. I'm not sure which way it worked. And you've written songs that aged really well that people want to hear again and again and again. It's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, go figure. And you know what? I was never thinking about an audience. I was never thinking about fans or people who bought my recordings. I was just thinking about, what do I want to hear? I actually did this for me, and it ended up being a great job. I'm a lucky guy. The most rewarding part of it is seeing new people come in. Instead of playing to the same age group, our demographic is all over the place, and that's very gratifying. Wow. You know, that these kids found it on their own, and they want to see it. I mean, the funny thing is, I've, I've gone on stage and said, well, I don't have anything new for you, and they go, yeah! You know, we're just going to play the same old shit. Yay! Okay. Yeah. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, and that was Andy talking to Billy Joel. And yeah, I mean, Billy Joel is cooler right now than he's been in a very long time, possibly ever. But this phase kind of, to get there, he had to retire first. And he also retired, as he was saying to you, from songwriting, obviously. And in part, he retired, you were saying, because the album River of Dreams, which insanely was the final Billy Joel album, as far as we know, he thought it wasn't a success, when it obviously was a success. Yeah, I think that he had such huge success in the late 70s through the 80s, and Stormfront was this monster album. Then now it's 93, and it's the era of grunge and everything, and there's a new Billy Joel album, and shockingly enough, it's a huge hit, and there's a huge single on it. But in his mind, it's just one hit single. It's not like four hit singles, and it sold less than Stormfront. So to him, it was a bit of a disappointment. So it was 93, right? Yes. And so, you know, like Human Touch and Lucky Town had already come out and not done that well commercially. Mm -hmm. And other people were floundering. It was a new era. And yet, there he was, totally well, succeeding. I think in his mind that the trends that they would come and go, that he lived past New Wave and hair metal and, and so much stuff, that the grunge and stuff, it was just one more thing that would come and go and he would stay. He got tired of, in his mind, that he wasn't respected. That I think to lots of rock critics in the 80s, the people who had lots of hits, like the Phil Collins, you know, all of those kind of people, that they weren't cool, that they were the opposite of the Pixies or the Replacements or Sonic Youth. And they're almost like the enemy because they were these old white guys that were just doing the same old thing. 
Well, there's a long history to Billy's sort of status with critics, and a lot of it was he was seen as sort of a craftsman in the Tin Pan Alley tradition, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone like reaching out and finding the darkest parts of his soul and vomiting it out or whatever you were supposed to be. And it was actually the same thing, I think, that led people to really downgrade Solo McCartney. Mm-hmm. But all this stuff is being rethought. And I think Billy Joel as craftsman looks a whole lot better now because if you craft your stuff really well, it's just going to hold up. Yeah, I think all the baggage of the past has been washed away, and what remains is this catalog of songs that you hear everywhere. But I thought it was a little bit sad when he said to you that part of the criticism of him was that he wasn't a real rock and roller, but now he said he's lived the life, and that was you know, a reference to his substance problems and stuff. And I thought, geez, like, well, I, <laughs> if he thinks that helped give him cred and that was necessary, like, that's just sort of a tragic thought. Sort right, of. yeah. I guess that didn't occur to me, but you're totally right. But I don't think that was the critique that he didn't, you know, drink enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was it was different. It's weird because so he stops writing songs and he claims to write well I don't want to say claims. He writes all this instrumental music. He did have a classical album come out and he didn't play on the classical album. He said he couldn't physically do it, right? He just didn't think that he was as good as this classical player that he had played on it. It was called Fantasies and Delusions out in 98. So it's been it's been a long time since he even released any classical music. Yeah. But I don't know that it's exactly what he says it is. I, I do wonder whether there's some kind of creative block or something. I think it's hard to say, but what he's proven is that new songs don't matter, that nobody goes to a big arena show of a classic artist and is hoping for new songs. So it just doesn't matter because back in the day, it was this thought that you couldn't tour if you didn't have a new album or any new hit. And that's obviously just not the case at all now. It's a little depressing that it may work in his favor that there's been no music. It does. If you show up at his concerts, you know exactly what you're getting and you're thrilled. There's no risk of a bunch of like new songs. I kind of think, based on what Billy said to you, that he might pull it out for one more album. I think just all this praise and approval might cause it to come out of him. I don't know. I think not. I think the weight of 25 years of not doing it will shine such a spotlight on what he does that it'll freak him out and say, so right now, is this is this perfect legacy? I think he's worried about sort of sullying that. I think part of the problem was, so if you listen to the course of his records, so right before River of Dreams was... Stormfront. Stormfront, right before that was The Bridge. It was The Bridge, which yeah. was not successful, which is when he got rid of Phil Ramone as his producer, and he got Mick Jones out of Foreigner to Stormfront, and he made a very modern record, which hit. Modern for the time. Well, it was modern by standards of like 89, which is a bad time to be modern. A big sort of arena rock thing. Yes. So, And that stuff, I think, aged... It's interesting. So that was an attempt at being modern at the time. And that's a classic example of like, that stuff sounds ancient now with its sort of foreigner guitars versus The Stranger, which sounds timeless. Yeah, I fully agree. I think the problem was that he became convinced he needed to stay current, couldn't imagine himself being current, and then kind of got caught in a trap. Because I heard that song Christmas in Fallujah that he made. It had that foreigner rock guitar stuff. And it's like, no, no, that's not what you should be doing. If I was producing him, Mm -hmm. I would just say... Pretend you're making the next album after The Stranger, which is the old Rick Rubin trick. Mm -hmm. And just write songs for the follow-up to The Stranger and work in that style. Don't try to be modern, because what does that even mean for a... But he's a guy who makes hit songs and always did. And And I think that 93 was the last year in which any of those guys were able to get radio hits. After that, for Rod Stewart, for Phil Collins, for Elton John, for all of them, it was just that was the end of the era when those kind of guys 
could get radio hits. So it's like as much as he says that he's doing it for himself, without the goal of getting on the radio, it's hard for him to focus the energy in the form of a finished song. I would think so. And I think that's why Christmas in Fallujah was an attempt to be so modern. And I think that he's a mainstream guy in the, in the best sense of that word. And if there's a 0% chance of a new Billy Joel song being a hit, it's just like, what's the point to some degree? I mean, it's better, I guess, not to put stuff out than to do like your album with Timbaland or like Billy Joe Now with Quavo or like, you know, right. it's just like something catastrophic. So, it, but I don't know, man. I think of him as a little deeper than just a hit maker. <laughs> no, I think he is too. But I think doing the concert is so satisfying. I mean, when I interviewed Stevie Nicks a few years ago and I asked her about making a new record, she just says, oh my God, it's so much work. It's so much money. It's so much fighting. And for no payoff, besides it costs me money, where a tour is the opposite. Well, actually, you know, that's a really good point because Billy actually waited until albums were kind of worth less than they ever were. And mm-hmm. now it would be such a come down because his last album came out in an era when it's like millions <laughs> of CDs coming to the stores and people lining up to buy it. And now it's, you press a button and bloop, it's on streaming. And everyone's like, oh, cool, a new Billy Joel album. They listen to it once and then move on. Yeah, I've spoken to so many veteran artists about this. I asked Art Garfunkel about making a new record, and he was like, why would I do that? Whereas David Crosby is he's like, I can't stop. I do one a year, and it costs me money, but I need to express myself. So there's such a wide spectrum of feelings in sort of the veteran like community of rock stars. Still, I definitely think the most fascinating thing about Billy is his silence while being very noisy on stage. It's amazing to me that just without even wanting to that he doesn't write songs i don't understand how that works for someone to be alive and well mm-hmm. and just not be like hey i, I just wrote a song it came to me. like that's what yeah. he did i don't understand <laughs> i guess i don't get it yeah it's a pretty unique thing there are not many people that are healthy and still active that have not done it for as long as him but it is working for him he's selling more tickets now than he's ever sold in his whole career yeah it's strange i don't know and maybe we're going to be seeing more retirements but yeah, i just don't get it i want to like closely examine it you've written so many songs if you've ever written a song and you start playing chords like you'll write a song it's like it doesn't have to be a good song in some sense i guess i don't believe him I don't believe that he hasn't written little bits of songs and that he then just refuses to finish. Well, I imagine he has. I mean, it's like Van Halen also. I mean, I don't think that he's written a new song in a million years. Well, I think that's a good point. Some people work, and that's true of Pete Townsend as well. Some people, even in rock, work in a way where they write little bits of music that they then later may or may not add vocal melodies. I guess that's it. They're sort of composers as much as they are songwriters, and I don't know. It still doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, someday we'll crack this mystery. You're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. I'm in the studio with Andy Green. We played Andy talking with Billy Joel, and that was today's episode. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and maybe even leave us a nice review on iTunes. In the meantime, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.